Oh, good day, church. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for an opportunity to gather this morning. We thank you for uh, so many in this room who've braved the weather and have made great sacrifices to come here, whether it's uh, getting here by public transport, even though the trains are down, whether it's coming after a long shift from work, uh, whether it is you know shuffling the whole family after a long week. I thank you for the faithfulness that is embodied and symbolized here. And so now, dear Lord, as we come to a difficult topic, we ask that your word and your spirit will lead and guide us and challenge us, uh, but also teach us to be wiser for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, it's hard to believe that we are near the end of the year already. This is the time of the year when we usually reflect on the 11 months that have just gone by, right? Uh, perhaps you're pausing and you're celebrating some accomplishments, uh, but some of you may be grieving some unfulfilled dreams. Or some of you are thinking, all right, I've got a few more weeks to nail those New Year's resolutions that I made earlier in the year. Let's make it happen, right? But it's also a time when we begin to look forward to the new year. In your mind, you're probably thinking, all right, we're a few weeks away from January 1, new year, new me. And this coming year, this is the year I'm going to make all the positive changes I want it to take place. Now, church, I want to say that this mentality is all very well and good. Though I want to encourage us as a church to realize that change and new beginnings don't have to wait to the new year. Every day is a fresh start. I'm not sure if you realize, nothing magical happens between December 31st and January the 1st. It's actually just a new day. And so whatever change or transformation you're looking for can actually start today. I hope you're encouraged by that. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 to 23 reminds us, God's mercies are new every morning. You don't have to wait. But church, you see, I get the tendency to want to wait for a new year. And it's with this in mind, I'd like for us as a church to spend the next four weeks thinking, reflecting biblically, and then planning on the topic that I think is often underemphasized and neglected. And as mentioned before, it's a topic of money or wealth. Now, there are a lot of reasons why it's underemphasized or neglected, right? We'll, we'll dive into some of those uh, reasons in just a moment. But very broadly, we all know that money is this sort of sensitive and low-key taboo topic that we tend to avoid. Like We don't usually go around asking people how much they make. That's often between you, uh, your family, maybe your accountant. You don't go around um, talking about how much we spend on things. Uh, We may jump on social media to show pictures of our family, our jobs, but never our bank accounts. Why? It just seems like money and wealth is a really private and personal topic. But as we'll see in just a moment, and this is the main idea of today's sermon, money matters to God. Money matters to God. So money is not a distant, abstract, or even worldly concept to be avoided. No, it is actually integral to our discipleship, to how we follow Jesus. And so our attitude towards money, how we make money, how we use money, how we save money, how we invest money, how we enjoy money, but also how we give money, all of these things matter to God. 
So today's sermon is a bit of an overview of some of the key themes, and we're going to spend the next few weeks sort of like introducing and unpacking the topic. And next three weeks, we're going to dive deep and untangle some misconceptions that Christians have about money. And my hope and prayer is that as a church, we'll land at a place where we can have a healthier and holistic attitude towards money. That's the goal, right? To examine scripture to have a healthier and holistic attitude towards money. Now, because this is a sensitive and practical topic, I want to give us space each week to reflect. Uh, you're going to have lots of re- reflection questions. And on some weeks, we're going to have some Q&A as well. So if you look at your outlines at the back page, you'll find a link or a QR code. Um, and during the sermon or even throughout the week, you're welcome to just flick them across and we'll deal with them as weeks go on. I'm going to try to keep my sermons to a certain length. Imagine that, right? Uh, I'm going to have hopefully 10 to 15 minutes each week to work through those questions um, together. We're going through this together. We're going to have our Bibles open, and we're going to examine what God's Word has to say to us. And I suspect that you are going to be very surprised by what we have to say. Money matters to God. Come to point one with me. And I want us to just notice, um, as it relates to this topic, what we could call the great Christian silence on the topic. And by that, I mean Christians, at least in our Reformed Christian circles, are fairly shy or maybe even embarrassed to talk about money and wealth. Have you noticed that? Why is that? Well, I think this silence is firstly explained by some real warnings from Scripture with regards to money, right? These are warnings that give us the impression. It may not be the reality, but it gives us the impression that money is dirty, that money is bad, that money is wicked. And I mentioned the word impression because the Bible's teaching on money is actually far more robust and rigorous than these selected passages I'm going to draw your attention to. But as I read these verses, you're going to be familiar with them because they are some of the most dominant voices. For example, uh, turn to Luke chapter 16, verse 14 with me. Luke chapter 16, verse 14. If you see someone in your road struggling to find that, why don't you give them a hand? And as you do, you may remember that a group of people whom Jesus consistently criticized in the New Testament were a group of leaders called the Pharisees. Uh, They were a group of proud, self-righteous, insecure, and power-hungry religious leaders. And it's very interesting. In and amongst all of these negative descriptions of the Pharisees, look at the passages with me. It says there that they were Lovers of money. That's so interesting, isn't it? Passages like these equate loving money as being as wicked as pride and self-righteousness. But it's not just Jesus. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Paul here describes the characteristic of wickedness in the last days. This is a serious passage, right? And as you turn to that passage, you'll see it says... People will be lovers of themselves. We preach against that, right? But lovers of money, boastful, proud, abuse, and the like. Now, this paints a picture, doesn't it? Money seems evil. And all of this is helpfully summarized in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 10 to 11. These references are in your outlines. 1 Timothy 6, verses 10 to 11, where Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So it's like money has this unique and taboo status, a bit like the one ring in Lord of the Rings. It's this mystic and magical corruptive power. 
You come close to it, you touch it, and it makes you a terrible person. So we keep it under wraps, and we keep a very safe distance from it. Shh, don't talk about money. It's really, really evil. Now, in the coming weeks, I'm going to show us why this is a skewed and unhealthy reading of Scripture. The Bible actually has a very glorious vision of wealth, but this narrow reading contributes to the silence. This is why Christians generally have a negative rather than healthy attitude towards money. But there's more, right? Uh, continue your outlines with me. Because you see, on the one hand, I think it's true that Christians are silent about money, but there's also another group of Christians who talk lots about money and probably a little bit too much. Uh, you may know what I'm talking about. We hear this actually from the media from time to time. I'm not going to name names today. I'll do that next week, right? Uh, but there are some groups and organizations and teachers that harp on about how Christianity can make you rich. And the more you give to God, the richer you will be. And so they keep trying to convince people to give their money away to churches and to their ministries, to their organizations. You see, the theological root of this practice is what is known as the prosperity gospel. It's filled with errors and is profoundly harmful. Uh, but this is what is commonly associated with Christians today. If you read the news, that's the impression that you get. And people may say, and I have an uncle who said this to me. There's a quote in your outlines. All Christians talk about is money. Is that something you've heard before? And so church, there is a chance that in an attempt to not contribute to this narrative, godly and biblical Christians shy away from the topic so as not to heighten this impression. Now church, moment of honesty right now, right? I like to say that one of the chief reasons I struggle to talk about a topic of money, especially from the pulpit, is this. In my eight, nine years here at Grace Point, I have never preached a sermon on money. Because you see, as a pastor standing up on stage, asking people to give money is almost comical, isn't it? Like people will think, well, of course the pastor's going to ask for money. That's what all Christians do. And see, see, I don't want anyone in this room to feel uncomfortable. I certainly don't want non-Christians to think that they need to give money to be part of this church. I also want people to think that we are a prosperity gospel church. And so, pastors like me, teachers like me, tend to say nothing out of fear. Shh, don't talk about money. People will think less of us. But there's more. Uh, the great evangelist John Wesley once wrote, that the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. That's such a fascinating statement, isn't it? It's true in so many ways, right? It's easy to profess with our lips that Jesus is Lord. It's difficult, but still kind of reasonable to come along and to serve and do things. It's even more difficult, but still achievable to strive for holiness and obedience Oh, but it seems like the boss level of Christianity to be completely sacrificial with our finances. It's like Mother Teresa level Christianity, right? Some people get there, most people don't. Now, of course, none of this is true. The Bible's instruction on generosity is not to a select few people. And church, Grace Point is actually filled with incredibly generous people of different socioeconomic conditions. I'm so grateful for that. We should be proud of ourselves, though we have ways to go. Uh, but there are so many in this church that embody the sort of radical generosity we see in the Bible. 
But the truth is this, church, all of us struggle with finance and generosity. Because Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 makes a very strong point. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. What does that mean? Our wallets, our bank statements, how we spend our money show us what we truly worship because it shows us what we truly value. And it's very uncomfortable to talk about our idols and our false worship. So we stay silent. As a result, the topic of money and wealth has become a convenient place of unchecked, unfiltered idolatry. And because of this, we allow idolatry, false worship, and sin to spread. Now, here's the thing. The tragedy is that the church's silence on the topic has created a space for other messages and ideologies to fill the void. Because you see, everyone in this room has a position on money. The question is, what informs or influences your position? There's a very good chance it's actually our culture. Come to point two with me, because I want to show us that our culture's message on this is mixed at as best, is mixed at best, which explains some of the confusion that Christians feel about this, right? You see, first of all, our broader culture, actually, um, you'll be surprised by this, right? But our culture has implicit idea that money is dirty and rich people are wicked. I'm not sure if you realize that, right? Because you think that our culture is pro-consumeristic, pro-capitalistic, and therefore pro-money. It is and it isn't. I want to give you an example, okay? It's been reported by Fortune magazine that since 1994, Bill and Melinda Gates have donated more than 50 billion, billion with a B, right? To alleviate disease, promote education, and advance gender equality. I say billion with a B because it is very difficult for us to imagine that figure. At least for me, it is, right? Like, what, 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 how many zeros is a billion? I don't even know, right? Let's put it in perspective, okay? The average annual salary in Australia is around $90,000 per year, average, right? So if you make the average, you would need to work at least 555,000 years to make $50 billion. That's a lot of money. But what's very interesting about all this is that when rich people like these announce that they're giving money away, media outlets always report them as giving back. Notice that. They are giving back to society. Isn't that so interesting? It's as if the money they have that they made was owed to society and all the giving now is giving back. And so a subtle implication behind this messaging is that if they don't give, they are, for lack of a better term, stealing from society. If you give back, you're doing the right thing. If you withhold, you're doing the wrong thing. Only by giving their wealth away are rich people doing good. Forget the fact that Microsoft creates software that allows you to work and make a living. Forget the fact that tech companies allowed you to finish your studies. The only narrative we hear is that the only good that rich people do is when they give money back. And this sort of idea is the reason why a lot of wealthy people in our culture are demonized. It's like they must have done something wrong, something shady, something dodgy to become wealthy. 
And so the only way for them to redeem or to save themselves is to give their money back. Now, here's the complexity, right? Do some wealthy people make their money through dishonest means? Of course. But are there wealthy, godly Christians? Well, of course. You see, it rarely occurs to us that some people are wealthy because they have something unique to offer that people are willing to pay for. Perhaps they're wealthy because they're industrious. Perhaps they're wealthy because they're wise with stewarding their finances. But because this is the assumed background, we think the reverse is true. If rich people are wicked, then poor people are righteous. It's so subtle, isn't it? But it's the rich CEOs that are toxic. Look at them in their high six figures, sometimes seven figure salary. And then the poor, they must have done something right. Maybe they didn't sell their souls away. That's why they're poor. Uh, that's why there's a saying, right? We tend to draw a connection. The rich get richer while the poor get poorer. It's almost as if the poor get poor because the rich are taking from them. Now, I just want to say this is a complex topic. There are macro and microeconomic issues that explain these socioeconomic differences. It's rarely, if ever, black and white. But it's hard to deny what I've described as a prevailing attitude, that we have a strong negative attitude towards money and riches. It's especially problematic because it's an attitude church that very easily creeps into Christian circles. I know this as a pastor. It's not uncommon in churches for rich people to be viewed as less godly than less wealthy people. Like if they rock up to church in a Mercedes, then gosh, they must be selfish, hedonistic, and ungodly. But if they rock up to church in a Toyota, oh, then they must really love Jesus, right? So what the Mercedes driver needs to do is become more like the Toyota driver. In our society, rich means bad, poor means good. We've used wealth as a benchmark for morality. We've used appearances to judge someone's righteousness. But church, here is a feeling to face. There is a chance that our judgmentalism is actually a projection of our own insecurities and fears. And all of this is an antithesis to the gospel doctrine of Scripture and the gospel culture we're seeking to build here at Grace Point. A doctrine and culture that seeks to move beyond surface judgments and unearth the true condition of our hearts. The church is a place where the rich and poor are equal. No one is greater than the other. But we've bought into our world's narrative, haven't we, when we think about it? There's also a conflicting message, though. This is where it's confusing. Point 2B. Our culture says that money is dirty, rich people shouldn't keep theirs, but then... Money is necessary, so our culture says, make as much as you can. We live in a generation full of full-time jobs and side hustles in order to invest and grow, invest and grow. All your top sellers at bookshops, all of your top view channels on YouTube are often connected to financial wealth management. Everyone is looking for that secret source to make that extra buck to be unleashed into financial freedom. Now, I want to say that this is not necessarily wrong. 
In the coming weeks, we'll see that wise financial stewardship is intimately connected to following Jesus. And over the course of the next few weeks, I want to try to give us some biblical principles to help navigate through that. But every 20 to 40-year-old sitting in this room knows about that constant pressure to make more. And let's be honest, we all know that we need money, right? Like we can criticize the rich till the cows come home, but we know that at the end of the day, we need to pay our rent, our mortgage. We need to pay our bills. We need to put food on the table. And as Christians, we're called to be generous with it, right? But here's the dilemma. Point 2A, money is bad. Point 2B, we need money. So not too much, but how much is it too much? There is this elusive and invisible standard. As a result, Christians make, spend, save, invest in money without talking to anyone about it because we don't know what the standards are. Church, do you see how the great Christian silence accompanied by our culture's conflicting message produces a sort of confusion that is prevalent in our world today? A confusion that further perpetuates silence because we are scared of telling people what we believe in. That is the truth. You know what? Sometimes we don't know what we believe in. Do you see how the silence restricts us from the full life that Jesus promises? Church, that silence ends today. Because under point 2C, the most dangerous cultural message is that money will show how important you are. How do we know if someone has made it? Often it is by how rich they are. We're impressed by where they live, what they drive, what they wear, how many zeros are in their bank accounts. We've been conditioned to connect personal worth with net worth. And it is a profoundly crippling standard to live by because after all, how much is enough? What's more, how fragile is your personal net worth? To place your self-worth and identity on bank statements and investment portfolios is to build your hopes and dreams on sand. But we're confused, right? If not this, then what? Now, church, I want us to know that a topic of money is so important. Firstly, because there is just so much to untangle, right? We work for money. We spend money. We save money. It's hard, if not impossible, to get by a day without coming across money in physical or digital form. And I would be failing as a pastor, as your spiritual director, if I said nothing to help us as a faith family navigate through these challenging waters. It's too important. We need to untangle it. Second of all, it's important because the topic of money is too important for us to be influenced by anything other than the inerrant word of God. Money is not the most important thing, but let's not pretend like it's not important. So what are you allowing to shape your beliefs about it? A couple of social media influencers trying to sell you a program or the infinite wisdom of the eternal God. My prayer is that with our Bibles open, we can cut through a lot of the noise out there and arrive at a healthier and holistic attitude towards money. Thirdly, one of my observations is that part of the reason Christians struggle to make money, save money, give money, enjoy money, or anything related to money is because we have a conflicted relationship with money. The conflicted relationship means that Christians are scared of making money. 
we fail to see that money can actually be a gift from God to stir our gratitude and longing for Him. This is why we need to be discipled in how we think about it. Because if the church doesn't disciple us, then the rest of the world will. Church money matters to God. It is precisely because it is sensitive, private, and personal that God's word has something to say about it. So come to point three with me as we discover the creator's plan. Now remember, we're on a four-week journey, so this sermon is not going to cover everything. This is almost like the intro sermon to the four-week series. In fact, at the end of the series, I want us to get really practical and think about wealth in five categories. You can write this down, but we won't unpack all of them today. Five categories. I'm going to talk about sow, spend, save, serve, and savor. All right? Sow, like sowing a seed. Spend, spending money. Save, saving money. Serve, using our money to serve. And savor, enjoying. Five S's. Of course, they have to alliterate, right? Wisdom with wealth, all alliteration, right? So there's going to be Sundays when we get really practical, but for this Sunday, I want to stay a little bit high level and just make the really strong point that money matters to God. It's not a dirty topic that we can't discuss from the pulpit. It's not a taboo topic that we can't bring up in our discipling relationships. It's not an off-topic subject because as point 3A says, the topic of money is important because it reveals our fears and insecurities. Church, this topic is where our faith and trust in God is actually rigorously tested. The truth is many of us feel very vulnerable when it comes to money. For many of you in this room, you came to Australia with Little, if any, money at all, right? The younger crew, you, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? How many times have you heard your parents talk about coming to this country with two suitcases and nothing except the clothes on their back, right? And they had to hustle their way to get to where they're at right now. That sort of industrious work ethic and survival mentality has shaped a lot of our attitude towards money. And the heart of the messaging is this. If you don't look, if you don't look out for yourself, then no one else will. And I get this, right? That's the story of my family. Uh, when my dad first became a pastor, he was paid around 800 Malaysian ringgit a month, uh, which is like 270 Australian dollars a month to raise a family. 270 bucks. It was a humble and meager salary. That was the environment that I grew up in, and that profoundly shaped my attitude towards money. When I grew up, I wanted to be rich, right? And yet in our family, we often joked that if someone ever broke into our house, the robbers would look around and feel so sorry for us that they would leave us money instead of steal money from us. It hasn't happened yet, but you know, one can hope. No, no, don't bring it to my house, please. <laughs> because of that, the topic of money is the place where I am most pushed to exercise faith in Jesus' promises. When Jesus says, it was read out to us, Matthew 6, 26 to 27, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you add, sorry, can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Now, I read that and I say, yeah, but... 
so much fear, unbelief, and insecurity is uncovered when we talk about money. Yet it is exactly into these spaces of fear, unbelief, and insecurity where God wants to shepherd us. He wants us to know that He is more than enough for us. He wants us to know how He is more than enough for us. He wants us to follow by faith. Second of all, money matters to God because it reveals what our hearts truly worship. I referenced Matthew 6 verse 21 just then, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Think of it this way, okay? Money and wealth, they are like a magnifying glass to our hearts. Can you imagine that? A magnifying glass? It shows us what's really there. You may have heard people say, oh, money corrupts people, right? Money corrupts, power corrupts. And that saying actually finds its root in Aristotle and is not completely true. Money in and of itself is not a corrupting force. Sin is. Sin takes good things and perverts and subverts them. But money has an ability to amplify and draw attention to the corruption that is there. Like a magnifying glass, money zooms into the details and shows what we truly value, positively and negatively. Let me give you some examples from Scripture. Mark 10, you can write this down. Mark 10, verses 17 to 27. Rich young ruler, we're familiar with this passage, right? He's asked to give everything up and sell everything to follow Jesus. But our passage tells us he goes away sad because he had great wealth. What's clear in this text is that he was unwilling to give up his wealth to follow Jesus. And so we would say that wealth is his problem. Wealth showed that his heart was far from God, even though he was doing all the right things. But is wealth really the problem in our text? No, it was his disobedience. It was his unwillingness to believe in the promises of God. Because let me tell you, there are people in Scripture who are just as wealthy. Let me give you some example. Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew 27, verse 57, right? He was a rich man. But he used his wealth to donate or give a tomb for the burial of Jesus. We have people like Joseph called Barabbas, uh, sorry, Barnabas in Acts 4, verses 37 to 30, uh, 36 to 37, who sold his field to give to the poor. Again, wealthy person. But wealth was a magnifying glass to show the generosity that was there. We have Cornelius, a centurion, Acts 10, who was a wealthy man, but also known for his acts of charity. Don't you see? Wealth and money was the magnifying glass to show the true condition of their hearts. These passages show us you can be rich and greedy, but you can also be rich and generous. Likewise, you can be poor and greedy, but you can also be poor and generous. How we view money will uncover all of that for us. It will show who or what we worship. And God wants to enter into that dark space and bring about the light of the gospel and redeem any sort of confusion, any sort of sin, any sort of rebellion and brokenness that is there. Because anything short of obedience to Christ is settling for second best. And so, point 3C, money matters to God 
because God cares about the nitty gritty, sometimes ugly, often confusing part of our lives. A bit of a mouthful, right? However, here's the thing. There are many in this room who have their financial situation sorted out. You've got a good rate on your mortgage. Your stocks are working for you. You're covered by insurance. You've got a backup fund. You've followed all the steps from the barefoot investor. You've nailed it, right? And yet, you sense very little joy. You've got everything sorted out. You're on your way to retirement or you've already qualified for retirement. And yet, you feel like there is something profoundly missing. You've spent your whole life getting here. And you're like, now what? But there are some in this room for whom your financial situation is not sorted out. Uh, maybe you're living paycheck to paycheck. Maybe you have an unstable family situation ahead of you that could jeopardize everything that you have. Maybe you've made a few very bad business or investment deals and right now you, your family, are suffering the consequences of that. Maybe the topic of money is kind of triggering and traumatic for you because your family has fought and split over this issue. Do you see how this is actually a huge area for discipleship? For thinking about what it actually means to trust and follow Jesus through the muck of all of this mess? We cannot say that this is a sacred cow topic that no pastor is allowed to touch. There is too much redemption necessary here. And so very importantly, I want you to know that money matters to God precisely because He cares about the nitty-gritty, sometimes ugly, often confusing part of our lives. You know the Bible has over 2,000 Bible references about money and possession. And even Matthew 6, verse 25, 34 was read out to us earlier. The point of the passage is that it is possible to not worry about wealth, money, and material possessions. It's possible. But we choose not to worry, not because we're irresponsible. We can not worry because God cares. You could say He does the worrying for us. It's precisely because God knows that this is a confusing space, not just for our Excel spreadsheets, but also for our souls. That he enters in. Philippians 4 verse 6 tells us we can pray to God about anything and he listens. No. Right, so to wrap up our introductory sermon, let me close with a few points of conclusion. Okay. Um, point A. I want us to apply this by just saying don't be afraid of the topic. Money matters to God. We don't have to be afraid. And church, my prayer is that by the end of this series, money and wealth will no longer become a taboo topic for us here at Grace Point. That we can begin to normalize discipling each other's bank accounts. That we can begin to speak very openly about how to spiritually budget for the year. That we can talk really honestly about our earnings, our spending, our saving, our giving, our enjoyment of money. To keep it hidden and silent is to allow the world's influence to win over us. Uh, but like any sinful and sensitive issue, change begins by bringing things to the light. Now, of course, you will not be forced to talk about anything that makes you feel uncomfortable. There is no coercion. And you will be encouraged to only talk to people you trust. It's a difficult thing, right? 
There will also be no judgment for anyone who wants to take small steps of faith on this topic. You don't have to have everything figured out. We are here to journey with you, but let's not be afraid to talk about it. Conclusion B, I want to invite us to start really reflecting and talking to one another. We can start today by asking each other, hey, what did you think of today's sermon, right? Uh, Because the sermon is on money, you'll be talking money straight away. But to be even more concrete, here are a few points to ponder. It's in your outlines. I want to read it for us. Because this, maybe if you journal, you can just like work through these questions. Or maybe during morning tea later, ask each other. Number one, who or what do you think has most influenced your thinking and attitude towards money? Where does that come from? Question number two, before today's sermon, what would you say is the Bible's position and teaching on money? All of us have assumptions, right? What was yours? Number three, did you find anything surprising about today's sermon? If so, what was it? Uh, across the room, I see some like lights going on, right? Light bulbs going, oh, wow, I never thought about that. What was it? Share with one another. Question four, what questions do you have based on or following from today's sermon and passages that were highlighted? Or what questions do you have? You're welcome to use that link available to you. Um, fifth, if someone were to audit your personal finances right now, who or what do you think they would say you worship? I'll read that one more time. If someone were to audit your personal finances right now, who Or what do you think they would say you worship? That's a challenging question, isn't it? And so lastly, be prepared to be challenged over the next few weeks. I want to read John chapter 6, verse 35 to us. John chapter 6, verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, this passage comes as a part of a series of I am sayings in John's gospel. And all of these I am sayings were intentionally designed to help his listeners see that Jesus is the promised Messiah and King. But what I love about John 6 verse 35 is that Jesus is focusing on how he is sufficient. In other words, if you have him, then you have more than enough. And he communicates this by appealing to some of our most basic and primal needs, hunger and thirst. We all feel it. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This obviously doesn't literally mean that Coles and Woolies will lose all of the Christian's clientele because we're no longer buying milk or bread. But it does mean that all of our longings for fulfillment satisfaction, joy, all of these find their rest in Jesus. The one who gives eternal life through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. The one who gives forgiveness and new life. Church, do we believe in this? That if we have Christ, we have everything? But if we don't have Christ, we have nothing? Our reflections on money will bring all of these things to the surface. God loves us too much to allow such a critical topic to be influenced by the world. Money matters to God. Let me pray for us. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for an opportunity to uh, begin this four-week journey as we examine what uh, your word has to say about this topic. And 
We ask that this would all recalibrate a lot of our thinkings and beliefs and loves. Help us, dear Lord, because we know how frightening it is to talk about this, how vulnerable we can feel. Well, you ask that the grace of the gospel gives us a foundation of confidence to begin to be discipled in this critical area. Help us, dear Lord, as we reflect on the questions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.